0: Thank you for those scripture readings. And thank you uh, to all of you who have been praying for us this weekend. Last night was better. So the brightness of the morning always looks a little brighter when you have a little sleep behind you. And uh, I would echo, just uh, before I start, uh, some of Roger's comments. But as an outsider, one who's just, uh, just come in this weekend with you, uh, it's been a real privilege and pleasure to have some conversations and get the feel for uh, at least a little bit of uh, the different congregations that are, um, that make up this church. And I think that um, there is a real energy and desire to grow in understanding God's word and in applying that to your lives and in loving one another and loving your community. And that is a really encouraging thing to see uh, whenever you visit any church. So um, it will be in our prayers. Uh, and Again I'll say we're very happy to have sent Roger your way from the Anglican and I think it's a fantastic um, partnership for you and for him and for Jane to be working together there in Newtown Resleyvilleville. So having said that, let me let me pray just once more before we begin. God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we ask now that you would open our hearts Soften our hearts, prick our ears, help us to be attentive and thoughtful, and most of all, we ask that your Holy Spirit would take the word and plant it in our hearts and minds, that it might grow and bear fruit there, and that we would be encouraged as we fix our eyes upon Jesus. In whose name we pray, amen. So... I hadn't really thought about this as I was uh, proposing these uh, bits of Hebrews to speak to you about, but it works out really nicely for me. How many of you saw the Olympics recently? I'm sure you, you tuned into at least some of the Olympics. Um, it, it was the first Olympics for our boys to be aware of, and it, for that reason it was really fun for us to watch as well. It was also um, interesting to watch the Olympics living here rather than living in the U.S., and there were only a few times when that actually came to a head, and the boys kind of looked at us wondering who they should be cheering for, but whether the U.S. or Australia, but we, we all enjoyed, I think as you would have, uh, watching especially some of the victories on the in the track and field, the athletics, and uh, Sarah Pearson, right, was great. How many of you stop saw her? her. Stop. Sorry, stop. <laughs> there we go. There we go. There's the okay. So, thank you. How many of you saw the, the gold medal race in, in the hurdles? It was a fantastic race, wasn't it? And, and, you, and you saw, uh, you also saw, if you watched the opening ceremony, that, that wonderful stadium and the stands with everyone gathered around and uh, just packed out. And then the race, and the energy of that race, and then watching as she crossed the finish line and won the goal, and the focus there, especially I think for her, uh, really evident, written in her face, this focus, you know, as as the cameras are always in their faces these days, they kind of pan across as they're announcing, and you get right in their face. For her, it was always this focus. There wasn't the kind of smile and the same waving to, at least from what I saw, she was very focused looking at that finish line, and you could tell uh, she was in the moment, in the race, fixing her eyes on the goal. And I think that is a wonderful image for us of what this passage is about this morning. Because this passage calls us to do one thing, and to do it as well as we possibly can, and that is to run, to run, to run the race of the Christian life, and to run it in a certain way. And so, uh, you have there in your handouts this morning... Uh, where we're going to go. But the big idea that I really hope you take away from this passage, and I hope that we can connect it to those that we looked at yesterday, is this. We are exhorted, by God's word, to run the exhausting race of faithful Christian living with the eyes of faith fixed firmly upon Jesus. So run, it's a tiring race, but run it to the best of your ability with your eyes fixed on our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is the entire message of this section that we're going to unpack this morning. We're going to do that by looking at three different aspects that the verses hold in front of us. The first is, if we're to run this race and run it in this way, there are some challenges. So what are the challenges that we face as we run the race? Secondly, it's a race that calls for strategy. It is, as we will see, not a sprint, it's not 110 meters, it's not even 400 meters, it's, it's a lifetime, it's an ultra-marathon, it's a long race, and it calls for a strategy. And finally, we'll have a look at the goal. What is that finish line, the end of the race, towards which we are running? Why are we running this race? Why are we called to run in this way? We're called to run this race. So let's look first at the challenges that we face As we run the race of the Christian life, there are, our passage tells us in verse 1, there are things that challenge us, that threaten to prevent us from running the race in the way we ought to. We are, as we run the race, to lay aside, verse 1 says, every weight and every sin which clings so closely. The idea of the Olympics, of course, is not just a modern idea, it's an ancient idea, and so... For these first century Christians, many of them would have been aware of, if not the Olympic Games, other games, athletic games of this sort of style, that were in cities around the ancient world, where you gathered in these huge stadiums, and you watched the runners run. And they also knew that to qualify, athletes had to be the best in the Mediterranean world. And they trained, just like our modern athletes do. They trained with weights, they trained with practice. But when it came to race day, they laid aside those weights. They laid aside the things that helped them prepare for the race so that they were, actually they were stripped bare. They had nothing entangling them so that they could run as fast as possible along the course that was set for them. Because there's a difference, isn't there, between training and a race. If any of you have been involved in athletics, particularly if any of you have been runners of any kind, you know that there is a difference between training and a race. There's a mental difference, there's a physical difference, you've got to have your head in the game, you've got to keep your focus, and you've got to have prepared your body so that it can do what you want it to do when you begin that race. That's the same sense that our passage brings to us in verse 1. Now, we saw yesterday, however, some of the benefits that help us to prepare as we train. Hebrews has pointed us to not only the finished work of Jesus in his life and death and resurrection, it's also pointed us to Jesus' current seat in heaven from which he can exercise his power and his ministry for us. And it has also reminded us, and we saw this yesterday afternoon, that on the basis of Jesus' ministry for us, we can do those three things, if you remember. We can come into God's very presence, as we are now, we can cling to the confession of our faith, and we can consider several things in community. How to stir one another up. How not to neglect meeting together with one another. How to encourage one another. And those are parts, integral parts of our training. We can't set that that aside, because otherwise we won't have trained for the race that we face each week. We need to be prepared to run. And when we hit Monday morning, as you know, as well as I know, you have to run, and you don't have a lot of time to be thinking. That's, that's one of the reasons, by the way, that Sunday worship together in community is such a glorious thing. Because it's the one place, the one place in the week, where we can be guaranteed to taste God's goodness and grace together with our brothers and sisters. To come together in a safe place to build our faith, to strengthen those spiritual muscles, so that when we go out into the week, With all its challenges, with all its temptations, with all the things that threaten to entangle and drag us down, we're ready. We have a way station along the way each week to prepare to run this race. So what we see this morning is in fact building on what we have looked at yesterday and what comes earlier in Hebrews. So the weights of life threaten to hold us down, but also there is sin's entanglement. Sin's entanglement, we're told, is a, is a threat to the quality of our running. In fact, to the completion of our running this race. Well, how so? Sin entangles. This, this word for entanglement is a really interesting word. Uh, it's a very rare word, and it's hard to get our hands exactly around it, but it seems to mean something like uh, what happens when you're caught up, you're entangled, uh, you are hindered or constrained by something that even can physically wrap around you. And it keeps you from performing in the way that you ought to. Uh, a couple of examples might help us to feel the weight of this entanglement as it, as it grabs us and tries to keep us from running. Uh, some of you, and, and I'm sorry, for some reason, I'm not particularly a sci-fi fan, a fantasy guy, but several <laughs> images as I've prepared for this have come from that direction. So if you're not, bear with us. Uh, if you saw the Lord of the Rings, if you've read them even better than seen uh, you know that at some point Sam and Frodo in their journey towards Mordor to get rid of this ring to destroy this ring they have to go through this cave and in the cave dwells a terrible creature this spider this giant spider Shelob and Shelob eats people you don't escape from Shelob but they don't know that they're led in there by Gollum and as they're going through the cave do you remember if you've you've read it? Or even if you've seen maybe if you've seen it actually for this image, it works better. Uh, As they're going through the cave, Gollum abandons them. They hear sounds, they know something's coming, so they start to try to escape. They start to try to run. But as they run, they're entangled, aren't they? They're entangled by this unimaginably sticky web that has been set to capture them by this, this spider. They're entangled And they almost don't escape. If they didn't have a sword to cut themselves free, they wouldn't have escaped. Frodo wouldn't have gotten out. That's the kind of entanglement this word is trying to convey to us, of being grasped, held down to your destruction. Something's coming that wants to eat you, and you're being held. That is the image that Hebrews 12 uses for what sin does in our lives, and what it can threaten to do to our spiritual lives. We have to take it very seriously, the entanglement and the danger that sin poses to us. Another image, maybe if you don't like the fantasy, um, that comes from, from a story, one that we're reading a version of with the boys right now also, uh, is Pilgrim's Progress. How many of you know Pilgrim's Progress, or the children's version, A Dangerous Journey? Wonderful picture book. You can get it at Kurong, actually. Uh, and in the in the story, Christian, this pilgrim who's setting out on the journey of the Christian life, that whose goal is reaching heaven, he begins with a terrible burden on his back. And in the version we have with our boys, this is depicted. I think it's from a BBC production a <laughs> few years back. He's got this bundle, this nasty bundle on his back, and it's, it's lashed to him, and he's bent over with the weight of it, and it keeps him from running. It slows him down. It hinders his progress. But do you know how he gets rid of it? Do you remember that part of the story? He finally comes to a place where he sees the cross and the empty tomb. And as he gazes at the cross and the empty tomb, his burden falls from his back and rolls away. But he was entangled. He was held back by the sin, by his burden, until he fixed his eyes on the cross in the empty tomb. These are just images for us, but images that I think help drive home the importance and the power of what verse 1 is talking about. If we are to run the race of the Christian life, we have to be serious about it, and we have to realize that there's training involved, but there's also danger. There's the danger of sin tripping us up, entangling us, as we do our best to listen to God's word, to answer his commands, but most of all this passage reminds us, to keep our eyes fixed on Christ. So we have to set aside sin's entanglement. Well, how do we do that? How do we we cut ourselves free from its web? How do we get it off our backs? How do we flee from it when it threatens to chase after us? How do we do that? Well, there's a strategy, and that's where Hebrews 12, 1-3 moves us. So, as we run this exhausting race of faithful Christian living with our eyes fixed on Jesus, there's a challenge, but there's also a strategy. What is the strategy? Well, the strategy is all about, and if you're a runner, you you can appreciate this, where do you put your eyes. Where are your eyes focused? I used to be a cross-country runner. You can probably tell I wasn't an American football player, ever. <laughs> Never. Uh, did a little baseball, but I was a runner. And as a runner, especially as a long-distance runner, you have to be prepared for perseverance, for endurance, when your body rebels in those later miles, when your muscles are screaming at you, when you know you've got to catch that guy right up ahead of you, but you feel like you can't. Well, what do you do? Well, my coach, a great coach, and one of his uh, repeated mantras to us was, keep your eyes on the back of his head. You put your eyes right on the back of the guy's head in front of you, and that pulls you along. Now, I've, I've been told that cyclists have something similar, you know, as you draft in behind the person in front of you. But I think, in my experience, this race uh, and running, it works really nicely, because as you fix your eyes there, and you fix your attention on where you need to go, and with whom you need to keep up with, it pulls you along, even after your body really shouldn't be able to do what it's doing any longer. It pulls you along. And that's what our passage tells us we have to do, as we fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith. He's the leader. He's the one who has pioneered the way. He's made that new and living way that he opens up for us to follow. He's walked along it, He knows the suffering. He knows the temptation along its way. He knows what it's like when you hit that third mile, or better yet, when you hit the last mile of the marathon, that 25th mile, and your legs are screaming at you, and your lungs are about to explode, and you feel like you can't do it. He knows. And he's right there, calling us to follow him. To follow him. So we fix our eyes on him, and we go towards him. That's what our passage says is the key to the strategy of running this race is fixing our eyes on Christ. Uh, I'm not a sailor. I was talking down with several people down at the water yesterday. I, I didn't grow up near water. I uh, grew up in the middle of the U.S. Uh, Lake Michigan was a four hour drive away. That was the closest big body of water we had. So I didn't grow up sailing. Some of you may have had more experience sailing than I have. It wasn't until I lived in Boston for a few years. And we had some friends who were living on a, a 39-foot sailboat. That was their home. And they invited us one weekend to come and sail with them from Boston Harbor up a few hours' journey to Maine. And this was really, for both Kathleen and I, the, the first time we'd really done any sailing. And so we got out, and it was pretty choppy water. And for the first, you know, for first sailors, it was a bit of a challenge. Uh, But, as they told us, and as you all know if you've sailed, where do you keep your eyes if you're starting to feel a bit queasy? You want to keep your eyes, I was told, on the horizon. Because as you fix your eyes on that fixed point, it all equilibrates just a little bit, just enough to keep you going from losing it. It's another image for us of the power of fixing our eyes on a point, on a goal, on a person, in the case of Hebrews, so that we can keep going in this difficult race of the Christian life. Well, how do we fix our eyes on someone that we can't see? How do you do that? We spoke a little bit yesterday about this idea that Jesus has gone, as Hebrews 10 tells us, into the invisible heavens. He's passed through the curtain, into the true tent, into God's throne room itself. That's where he is. That's where he... He invites us to draw near, that's where he calls us to come, but we can't see that yet. We don't see it yet with these eyes. What we do see it with, Hebrews tells us, is with the eyes of faith. So the strategy for fixing our eyes on Jesus is to look to him with the eyes of faith. Alright? That's a nice sounding phrase, perhaps, but what does that mean? Well, let's go back to Hebrews chapter 11. 11 which we've had to skip over. Hebrews chapter 11, if you've heard anything about Hebrews before this uh, this series, or uh, what you've heard recently at church, you might have heard Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 is that famous listing of all the heroes, the Old Testament heroes of faith, and the way that they persevered by fixing their eyes on the promised uh, future city of God, we're told. But right at the beginning of chapter 11, we get a nice statement about what Faith is, don't we, in 11.1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. See, God knows that it's difficult for us to have to fix our eyes on something that we can't see. But as we fix the eyes of our faith on Jesus, on what God's Word tells us about what Jesus has done for us, what He is doing for us, what God's Word tells us about what He has promised and cannot lie or break in His promise, that is how we begin to fix on what is unseen. And Hebrews says that's what fixing the eyes of our faith on Jesus means. It means having a conviction, an assurance, even though we can't see the thing that we're looking at, the thing that is promised. Okay, well fine, that gets us a bit further. But it's still a bit tricky, I think, when you start to unpack this practically. How do I do this day to day? How do I fix my eyes and have an assurance about something that's invisible, that I can't see? And here, as we set Hebrews within the context of the scriptures generally, I think we see one of the paradoxes. It's a beautiful paradox, and it's an important one, about the Christian life. The way you fix your eyes on Jesus, scripture tells us, is with your ears. You look with your ears. So, we read in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, that faith comes by hearing, and hearing the word of God. If we want to fix the eyes of our faith on God's promises, on Christ's ministry, on Christ's person and work, we have to do that with our ears. We can't do it with these human eyes, but we can with our ears because we hear God's Word proclaiming this promise and these truths to us. So the way that we are looking ahead of ourselves in this race is actually looking with our ears. We have to have open ears, and we have to constantly be listening to what God's Word is promising to us. That takes us back round to chapter 1, doesn't it? Why it's so important that we realize that God has spoken. He's spoken powerfully and definitively to us in His written Word and in His Son, Jesus. And it's that speech that we must listen to if we want to fix the eyes of our faith, where they're meant to be, so that we can run this race. Well, we're also told more about faith through the Scriptures, aren't we? We're told it's a gift, it's something that you don't earn, it's something that you don't deserve. We know that from Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9. It's a free gift offered to us. It's something that God graciously works within our hearts. We also know from the resources that we have from the church in ages past that faith is a passive thing in many ways. Faith is a resting. Faith is a receiving of God's promises. Remember that, if you would. Faith is a resting and receiving of God's promises to us in Christ. So actually, it's another paradox, isn't it? You're to run with all of your might as you rest. Run as you rest. Look with your ears and run as you rest. Is what we seem to be hearing in this passage. This is part of the strategy of running the race. Where are the eyes of your faith? Is what we have to ask ourselves each and every day. Well, Hebrews uh, chapter 11 chapter 12 rather verses 2 and 3 tells us exactly where the eyes of our faith should be they should be on Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith and here we need to pause and understand what it is we're looking at when we look at Jesus as founder and and perfecter of our faith we're looking at Jesus in two respects and this is on your on your outline that you have we're looking to Jesus as our example But we're also looking to Jesus, as Hebrews has told us, as our mediator. And those are two different things, and we need to be clear on the difference between them. Let's look at the example first. We're told that Jesus, in verse 2, as he ran the race of his faithful life and ministry, for the joy set before him, he despised the shame. He endured all the way to death on the cross. Jesus was faithful in running the race that was set to him by God the Father. And as we look to Jesus in that faithful perseverance that endurance through suffering, through persecution, through rejection, even by his own family at times, through physical and emotional and mental suffering that he underwent during his life, we see an example, we see a shining example for us of what it means to run the race with perseverance. We look to Jesus as an example. There's a famous book from a long time ago that was, that was repopularized in the States. It was at least in the 90s. a book by a man named Charles Sheldon called In His Steps. I don't know if you've ever read it. If you haven't, don't rush out and get it. I'm actually not recommending it. Um, as, don't put it at the top of your list, anyway. But it was an influential book in the the United States, and it stood behind what some of you might remember. I I don't know, Did, did the WWJD bad filter over to Sydney? Okay, so WWJD, What Would Jesus Do?, the bracelets and all the rest, came from this book, really. Because in this book, Charles Sheldon tried to ask us to imagine, in every situation in life, what would Jesus do? Because for him, the point of the Christian life was living like Jesus lived, looking to him as an example. Well, obviously, there's an element of that here in Hebrews 12, too. But Sheldon had it wrong in in an important way. And the WWJB fad had it wrong in an important way, because we can look to Jesus as an example in his endurance through suffering, but can we look to him as an example in the sacrifice that he made? Can we make that sacrifice of a sinless life? Can we look to him as an example of perfectly obedient following of God's will? Perfect faithfulness? No. There we don't look to Jesus as an example. There we look to him as a mediator. Because he has done something once for all that we cannot do. So it's not WWJD, what would Jesus do? If we wanted anything catchy like that, it's what has Jesus done? What has Jesus done? And let's look at that. So the second way, then, that we look at Jesus is not as only uh, an example, but as our mediator. And that is what Hebrews chapters 1 through 11 has been all about trying to unfold for us. Jesus is our great high priest. Jesus is the mediator of these better promises from God to us. Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice has opened a way for us to draw near as undeserving sinners in God's presence. That's what we look to when we look to Jesus as our mediator. Let's go back, though, just a few verses. I was talking with Andrew about this last night. In chapter 10, some of you may have heard this recently, uh, if you've heard uh, sermons or some talks on this. But in chapter 10 of Hebrews, if you, haven't, if you haven't heard this, if you haven't read it, go back and read it this afternoon or, or tomorrow, if you have a chance. Hebrews 10 is beautiful. We only, we only scratch the surface with those few verses yesterday afternoon, but in the first part of the chapter, it talks about the importance and significance of Jesus' once-for-all mediatorial sacrifice for us, and it finishes its first reflection on that in verses 9 and 10. This is when Jesus, Jesus even before the world was made, there's some heavy stuff here that we won't have time to really unfold, but I'll, I'll give you the summary. Even before the world's made, Jesus, together with the Father in heaven, says, I will go and redeem this people. And the Father says, if you do this, I'll give these people to you as an inheritance. That's your reward. You will get this people for your very own if you go and do these things. And so Jesus comes into the world with a mission. He has a mission. That's what this covenant that he mediates is all about for us. And his mission is to do what we couldn't do for ourselves, to obey those commands of God perfectly, and to make sacrifice for sin perfectly. So Hebrews 10, 9 and 10, summarizes all of that for us by saying, when Jesus entered the world, he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. And then in verse 10, And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ and here's the great phrase from Hebrews. Once for all. Once for all. So when we fix our eyes on Jesus as our mediator, we're looking at the one who has perfectly performed once for all. Our race, you might have seen, that, I, forget, I forget the American athlete, the woman who, who stumbled again in her race. Did you see that one? Oh, it, was, it was tragic. She was on the second last lap, I think. And she fell, completely fell, out of the race. Well, guess what? You're going to fall. You're going to fall. We know that we fall in this race. But it's not about perfect performance. It's about getting up and continuing. It's about not lying there. It's about not getting knocked off the track. It's about moving forward, even when you fall. Because Jesus already ran the race without falling. He ran it in world record time. He set the standard. We don't have to do that. He has done it for us. We fix our eyes on what He has done once for all. That's the strategy. So where are our eyes? We've got challenges, things that threaten to entangle us, but we have a strategy as we run this race. We look with the eyes of faith toward Jesus and His work. And there's finally a goal to this race. There's a finish line that we can glimpse in the distance that God's Word describes for us, a reason for running this race. As we run this very exhausting race of the Christian life, we mentioned earlier it's more like an ultra marathon, really, than a sprint. It's something that's exhausting. It's lifelong. Where we lived uh, just before coming to Sydney was in Indianapolis, Indiana. I don't remember if that came out in the interview earlier. And Indianapolis, if you know it at all, you pro- you might not. But if you've heard of it, you've probably heard of it in connection with the Indianapolis Five Hundred, the the motor race. Uh, I am not actually a big racing fan, but I'm married into a family which is. So Kathy's family, I think her dad has missed one or two races in 35 years, something like that. (laughs) He's, He's a faithful attender of the race. And if you've ever watched any bits of the race, you know that these cars, which are zipping around this track, they eventually run out of fuel, or things go wrong with their tires. They have problems. And so what do they do? They have to pull off, Pull into the pit area, and then, boom, you know, all of the... If you haven't seen any 500, maybe you've seen cars. You know, and my boys love cars. It's the same, the same, same idea. You, you zip into the pit, and your crew jumps into action, and, and puts you back together, fills you up with fuel, and boom, you're back out on the track. Well, as we are trying to get done with these 500 laps, this ultra-marathon... We need to be refueled along the way. And what we're doing right now is one of the best ways God offers us for that. We've seen that gathering together in community, that hearing God's word, his promises, having the Spirit apply that to our hearts. Later we're going to come to the bread and the wine and God's promises that are attached there to be communicated to us by his Spirit. These are ways that we can be helped in running the race and fixing our eyes where they belong. Because... They continue to direct our eyes towards the goal. The goal, which is life with God in the new heavens and the new earth. The invisible heavens will one day, the scriptures tell us, be perfectly visible. In fact, heaven will come to earth, and all will be transformed. And we will live with the glory of God in our midst, not inside a little tabernacle room not invisibly in the heavens, but the visible glory of God shining throughout the earth, the new heavens and the new earth. That's the goal. Heavens and earth transformed. And that is what we're running towards. We're running towards the wonderful blessing of life in that new creation. And that's a race worth running. So we want to make sure that we get to the goal, that we don't, like the Israelites in chapters 3 and 4 of Hebrews, fall away and fail to enter his rest, to enter the new creation. And so as we work our work our way towards the goal, Hebrews 12.3 gives us reminders of how we can do that. Back to chapter 12. As we look to Jesus, who himself set that goal of joy before him, the joy of having a people for his very own, the joy of honoring his father, he was able to despise the shame and then take his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. So we end up where we began. Jesus sat down. The way he sat down, the way he got to that end goal, was his own faithful work. And we, looking to him, follow in his train. As we also strive to enter God's perfect rest. Yesterday we saw several ways that we can do that with one another in community. We saw that we're supposed to stir one another up in a good way. We're supposed to encourage one another towards love and good works. We're supposed to most of all continue to point each other's gaze toward the Lord Jesus in our conversations, in our prayers for one another, in our relationships in our congregations, in our small groups. We point one another to Jesus. We point away from ourselves to Jesus. We point towards the goal, the final rest that awaits us at the finish line. So the goal is rest in the new creation, but the goal is also, and this is a great motivation when we grasp this, I think, the goal is also the glory of the one who called us into the race. We run not for a team so much, although we run on a team, but we run for the one who set us in that team, the one who enabled us to run the race in the first place. And we want to reflect His glory as we run. We want the way that we live, the way we cling to our confession of faith, the, one, the way we love and encourage one another, the way that love overflows the boundaries of our congregations and spills into the communities of Erskineville and Newtown. We want that To reflect, ultimately, for the glory of God. That's part of the goal of running this race faithfully. And as we do so, we do it by fixing our eyes on the Lord Jesus. So we end where we began yesterday, with Jesus who has been seated in heaven. He's already completed the race. He's done it perfectly. And it's on the basis of his perfect performance that we know we know, we have assurance that we will follow Him. And along the way, despite the difficulties, despite the sin that entangles us and threatens to trip us up, our strategy is clear. We have to keep our eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus. And Hebrews ends with that beautiful benediction, that beautiful blessing with which we began yesterday. And that's what I want to leave you with this morning. In Hebrews chapter 13 Verses 20 and 21, after all the riches that Hebrews has unfolded for us, some of which we've barely touched on this weekend, after all of the commands, and you notice we began to really get into some of that section, even in the scripture reading today, and we haven't had time to go there. Chapters 12 and 13 are full of things that we need to do as a result of what God's done for us in Christ. After all of that, how does Hebrews end? How does it end? It ends like this.